You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. And if you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and open up there. Uh, If you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that is okay. We do have Bibles somewhere underneath the seat around you, I swear. Um, And if you don't have one, please open up that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at your house that you own, consider that a gift from us and take that with you today. Uh, Because again, we want to bless you uh, with the Word of God. So today, again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. All right, again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one uh, was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he uh, was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning, everyone. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I just want to say thanks for making us a part of your week, especially if it is your first time here. We're glad that you're here. We're really glad that you joined us, and we hope you enjoy yourself this morning uh, here at Providence. So like Scott said, we've been working through the book of Exodus uh, all year long, and we're picking up in chapter number 18. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the book of Exodus, you know what we're inching towards, right? We're inching towards kind of what's the apex of this book in some ways, which is chapter 20. The Ten Commandments, you know, if you uh, have a little bit of age under your belt, you might immediately think Charlton Heston, you know, Uh, and and going up on the mountain and coming down with the two chiseled tablets of stone, and I'm not talking about his abs, I mean like the law, and then he breaks the tablets and has to go back and get the re-giving of the law, and we're headed to that that moment, which is why this series is called Mountain of God, it's uh, Mount Sinai is the mountain of God, and if you remember, Moses was told by God, Uh, in chapter number four, uh, go and tell Pharaoh, let the people go that they may worship me on this mountain. So they they were going to return here. That was God's promise. You're going to come back to this mountain. You're going to worship me here and something unique is going to happen here. And that's, and that's Sinai. But where we're at right now is 
kind of a, right at the cusp of that. They're, in camp, they're beginning their encampment around Mount Sinai, where the cloud of the Lord is about to descend. And there's this little, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to call it. It's almost like a short interlude story with Moses and his father-in-law. And it's a wonderful reunion story because we find out here that Moses had sent his wife and his two sons to Jethro's house in Midian, uh, basically for safety. You know, he knew he was going into a very dangerous situation. He very likely could have been killed by the Pharaoh, and we saw that, you know, playing out in the narrative. And so he had sent his wife and kids to be safe, uh, and now they're, they're coming back. So this is kind of a family reunion moment. Uh, but, but the heart of this story is, is really wonderful on two fronts, which is why we're going we're gonna to talk about it in two, two successive weeks is that it's, it's, yes, it's about Moses. Yes, it's about a reunion with his family, but it's really about how God continues to use Moses's life in order to extend his glory to all the nations. And, and Jethro is a part of that. And so we're going to jump into that story, work, work through the first 12 verses this morning, and then next week uh, we'll talk a little bit more about how it continues with the story of Jethro. But before we jump in, what I'd like to do is pray for us, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us through God's word, to open our hearts and our ears that we might hear what he has for us this morning. So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray for us. Father, thank you now that we not only have the opportunity, but the privilege to submit ourselves to your word. We thank you, God, that your word's been preserved for thousands of years and that you have proven yourself faithful through your word over and over, although you have no obligation to do so. We thank you, my God, that you are so faithful. And we do ask now together as your people that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see what you would have us see in your word this morning, that you would open our ears to hear that all of the overwhelming uh, things that constantly inundate our lives to keep us distracted, that at this moment you would give us an overwhelming clarity, that you'd give us the ability to see your word for what you are saying, and that it would cut through to the very bone and marrow, give encouragement where we need it, give rebuke where we need it, give admonishment where we need it, give a challenge where we need it. Lord, we ask that you might be our good shepherd this morning through your word, and we pray all of it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me read the first few verses here as we get into chapter number 18. It says, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now, this is not the first time we've heard of Jethro. If you guys remember chapter 4, Moses gets exiled out into the wilderness, right? This is after he slays the Egyptian uh, for uh, harming the Israelite. And Moses steps in and out of his anger, he he kills a man. And and then later on, he comes back and tries to settle a dispute between between two Israelite brothers. And they respond to him saying, who has made you judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And he's so shocked that people know about this murder that he runs away into the desert. Probably wisdom there because Pharaoh does end up hearing about it and puts a death warrant out for Moses, right? So as he's out into the wilderness, we hear the story of how Moses meets his wife. And he meets his wife by, just like his forefather, uh, Isaac and Rebekah. And there's a lot of stories like this in, in the Old Testament. But he meets his wife by drawing water for her out of a well and gets invited back to the father's house. And the father's name is Jethro. And he, that's where he marries his wife, Zipporah. Okay, so we know Jethro. This is not a new character being introduced. This is Moses' father-in-law. Here's what the Bible says. Jethro, the priest of Midian, 
Moses' father-in-law heard all that God had done for Moses and for the people of Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one son was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other son is Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh." And so Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he had sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So what we see here is that God has sovereignly arranged the events of Moses' life in order that he would be married into this particular family who didn't know God. He's a priest of Midian. We're going to talk a little bit about the Midianites and their religion in a moment. But all of this was for God's glorious purposes to be made manifest through the life of Moses, both the suffering of Moses and the triumph of Moses and all of that is in between those two things were meant that God might, through his life, reveal himself to all nations. We know here that the Bible records Jethro had heard the news from afar about God's salvation of the Israelites through rumors, and he brings Moses' wife and his sons back to him in this glorious reunion. What the Bible records is telling us that the the meaning of the names of Moses' two sons are meaningful. Now, I know that we kind of, you know, we, we give names to our kids on the basis of, you know, like a baby name on Google or like you watched a cool Netflix show, you know. You're like, I'm going to name you Kanye, you know, whatever you want to name so your child. There was a time, though, that you named your child something that had meaning, and everyone's name meant something. And if you read the Bible, it's not always like the greatest cool name meanings. Like there's this one moment, particularly in the book of Genesis, where Sarah is bearing, I believe it's Benjamin, one of her children, and she has such a hard labor that she wants to name him uh, something pretty brutal. I think she's like, like son of, son of my sorrow or something like that. And Jacob, knowing that names mean something and they kind of bring this identity that's going to be with you for the rest of your life. He steps in at the last minute and says, no, he won't be named Ben Anoni, but he'll be named Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, which turns the tables for Benjamin. It's kind of a, kind of a big day for him, right? It's like, your name is either going to be son of my sorrow or son of my power. It's like, thanks dad. You know, um, rough time. But here the Bible records the sons of Moses and their names. And and here's the thing. It doesn't stop there. It tells you their meanings. Each of Moses' sons' names tell a story. Gershom, Gershom's name, the Bible records that its meaning is I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And if you look down in your Bible, it'll tell you that, you know, the Hebrew word for sojourner sounds like Gershom. So Gershom's name represents Moses' life when he feels like he's been exiled from the people of God. He has physically been exiled. It's a low moment of his life, basically, that he feels like God has left him. He names his son that. And then we, we move on. It says that his second son's name is Eliezer. And Eliezer's name means the God of my father was my help. So in Moses' two sons, we get two parts to the story of Moses' life. Moses' trials, God's redemption. And that these two sons are coming back to him with the father-in-law Jethro. 
And then in a moment here, what we're going to see is that in the same way that Moses' two sons tell the story of Moses' life, Moses will begin to tell his story to his father, Jethro, and there will be a massive moment of change. Now, Jethro is a priest of Midian. He announces his arrival with Moses' family here. And what I, I want to point out, we're going to get way more into it next week, but you got to notice here that Jethro kind of likes Moses. He loves Moses. Uh, Moses loves him. Uh, this is a good relationship. If you're not in a great relationship with your father-in-law or your mother-in-law or your in-laws in general, hey, there's plenty of people that are like you, but that's not this one. It doesn't seem that way, at least. Like, they kind of get along. It's like, I don't know if you noticed it, but when you read here, like Jethro and Moses give each other a hug and a kiss, and it's like Zipporah's got to be standing there like, what's going on here? You know, doesn't even address the kids. You know, he's just like, they like each other. It says that they ask one another about their welfare. How are you doing? How have things been going? There's a real care that's going on here. Now, what's essential here in this portion of text, though, is that this sojourning son-in-law is about to flip the script on the relationship. Most you know, father-son relationships is there's a dispensation of wisdom and love and care and authority, and I'm going to teach you things, son, even the father-in-law. But that's about to flip for a moment. Now, next week, we're going to get into how it flips back. But in this moment, the son-in-law is about to be used by God as an instrument as he tells his testimony to his father-in-law, and the reality of the supremacy of Yahweh comes into Jethro's life for the first time. And there's a a flipping of the script. It's a reversal of power. Oftentimes in the New Testament, you'll see this. Jesus will tell parables about a power structure and how God ends up upending it and reversing that power structure. God didn't only do that through Jesus in the parables. The Old Testament's full of this too. Jacob and Esau, Esau the older brother, but who ends up supplanting the older brother? It's the younger brother. There's a reversal. And God here uses the son-in-law to teach the dad-in-law something before the dad-in-law teaches the son-in-law something. Now, what's wonderful is he doesn't do that by coming in and saying, Jethro, we need to have a serious conversation. I'm about to teach you a few, a few things. He simply does it by telling about God's goodness and faithfulness. So I want to walk you through that in verses 8 and 9. Let's do that. What does Moses say? So now they've moved into the tent and they, they're catching up. Verse 8, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. I'm going to roll through those again. All the Lord did to Pharaoh, all the Lord had done to the Egyptians, all the hardship they had been faced with along the way and how the Lord delivered them from their hardship. Moses is faithful to recount all of God's goodness. He speaks to his father-in-law in this complete and unabashed transparency, unabashed honesty. He tells of victories, but he doesn't shy away from telling him of losses either. It says he tells him about the hardships. Like, uh, I can't help but think, we just got through this, but what are some of the hardships? Well, he tells him things like, um, yeah, God saved us from Pharaoh. He, he parted the Red Sea. And then we got on the other side and everybody got hungry and tried to kill me. And then everybody got thirsty and they tried to kill me again. He tells them, yeah, you know, God did all these plagues. And then there was a moment where Moses said, if I ever see your face again, I'm going to kill you. And I was terrified. And then we got to the Red Sea and we were encamped all about and I didn't know what to do. I thought we were going to die. And then, and then God stepped in. So he tells them about God feeding them, but he first tells them about starvation. You know, he tells them about God bringing water, but he first tells them about drought. 
And he doesn't shy away from telling the whole story and how God comes through in his goodness. In short, what I want you guys to see here is that Moses becomes an evangelist to his father-in-law simply by recounting the stories of his life and not omitting anything, but highlighting God's goodness. The hero of Moses' story here is God delivered us. Here's all that happened. Here's all my frailties and failures. Here's what I, but God delivered us. My wife and I just got back. We had an opportunity to go on a, a little family vacation. It was wonderful. If you haven't been to the airport, though, recently, it's not a delight. And it never is. I don't like traveling, but most recently, it seems to be more like climbing up Mount Doom. You know, I just don't like it at all. Uh, the lines are longer. You don't know where to park. Um, I'm already kind of sweating, and then there's more people touching me. And I, I don't know. I'm a tall guy, so I can see everything. I, I wonder sometimes if I wasn't tall, though, I might just, like, curl over right there and just die because at the airports just kind of get me in this anxious place. Well, anyway, we were coming back and go through customs and all those things, and we're getting our bags. And you ever been a part of the baggage situation where you're at one of the carousels, and there's all these people all around, and you watch an entire flight come in as you're waiting for your bag to even, you know the little buzzer that sounds, and that's when you know. And like three other flights do that, and you're just standing there, and you're like, where's our guys, you know? It's like you want to know somebody at that, po- up that point, but you don't, and so you're just kind of looking around. You go around and start looking at other carousels. You're like, is this my flight? You're looking at tags. People are eyeing you because now you're looking at their bags, which is weird. And so anyway, go through all that rigmarole. The bags come through, and I picked up my bag, and walked out. And my wife and I, we have the kids with us. And we went on this trip where I bought, brought golf clubs. And it's just like, why did I bring these? You know, you like it whenever you're there. But then later you're like, I just don't care at all. I wish I didn't bring these. So I got all these bags. My wife tries to pack lightly. She brings the whole house with her. I'm not kidding. She's not here, but I will say this at the 1045 when she is there. One time she tried to bring a mini Keurig. And I told her, this is too much. It's, I'm done. I can't do this. So we're all carrying all these bags, and I get into the, the, the parking lot shuttle, and I get a text message from a random number that says, hey, I think that you may have grabbed my bag, or I may have grabbed yours. And at first I thought, and I know you guys are probably thinking this too, when you see an unknown number, you're like, not today, scammer. I'm not allowing it, you know. Then I look over at my bags, and, I'm, and I quit, like, immediately I look and realize I don't have the right bag. So I'm thinking, I'm in the parking shuttle, by the way, and I'm passing by the line of cars to get back into the airport, and I'm just looking at it. And my wife's like, me and the kids are going to eat. You're going to go back in the shuttle. <laughs> and in this moment, to make, to make this very long story very shorter, uh, I, I end up calling this person, and they say, hey, you know, and they were actually very nice. And uh, I'm like, well, where are you guys at? I'm thinking they might have a connecting flight because we had some people on our flight that were going on, and I, you know, because Houston's kind of a hub. I'm like, oh, man, what's going to happen? I'll, I'll bring it back. I'll bring it back. Like, well, where are you? I'm on my way on the parking lot, and which one? I'm at Fast Park. It ends up they parked one row down from us, and they're on the way. And uh, first of all, I just need to make this mention. That doesn't happen to me. Like, for me, it would have been like, oh, you're in L.A., and I got to drive. You know, like, that's more like it. Uh, Anyway, I get to there, and, I, and I, there's this moment uh, that I'm, we, we parked right by where their car was, ended up, it maybe was like a 10-minute uh, thing. Handed my bag over, or handed their bag over, got my bag back, and we were kind of laughing about it, and the lady was like, yeah, our bags look so alike. And then I said, isn't it awesome that the Lord made it where we could be this close together? The Lord provided in this way. And in my heart, pastor court, there was a part of me that was like, why'd you say that? I had this tinge of like, why am I the religious weirdo? 
That's what I thought. That was my first inclination in my flesh. Like, because I, you know, I, 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 I could have imagined it, but I saw her eyes and she's like, the Lord who, you know? <laughs> and maybe I imagined that. Maybe she loves the Lord. I don't know. But that was my own projection. And I thought, why am I doing that? And if I had to guess, my guess is that you probably have that in you as well. And, and, and this is why I think Moses' story here is so important. Because it's not just with strangers that we have it. We have it with our family, too. We have it when we get to Thanksgiving dinner. Like, I don't want to be the religious zealot at the table, you know, that every single like, movie I've ever watched has made fun of, and now I'm that guy or gal. But here's what I want to say, Christian. Your entire life story is being woven by God into a tapestry of his grace and redemption. And just as your body is not your own, your life story is not your own. You've been bought with a price. That story has a purpose, And just as God expressed to Moses that his purpose was that through the Exodus story, all the nations will know that I am the Lord, God has expressed to you and to me that it's through our story that all the nations might know that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. It means that in the minuscule story, like my luggage story, or in the grand stories, like him saving us from our own sin and death, that story is God's story we've been commanded to tell. It is the expressed intention of God when he redeemed us from the bondage and the tyranny of sin. He did so through the perfect spotless blood of Jesus. But when he did so, he did so so that you and I might proclaim his excellencies. The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In case you don't believe me, I just want to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. This is what Peter says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is all Israel language, okay? A people for his own possession. But he's talking to the church. He's talking to you. He's talking to everyone who believes on the name. You're a people for whose own possession? God's own possession. He's, he's mirroring Paul's words. You've been bought with a price. You're owned by God. Why did God do all of these things? He says, you've been chosen, you've been made holy, you're a people for God's possession. Once you were exiled, now you're not exiled. Once you were not a people, but now you're a people. Once, you've re- once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. But why? It's right there in verse number nine. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been saved and sent into the world to be a living declaration of God's goodness. And you've been saved and sent into the world to be a living declaration of God's power to save to the uttermost, even the people that feel they're the furthest from saving. That's who we are. He goes on, Peter says this in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, And exiles, remember, sojourners, okay, exiles, who's that sound like, Moses? To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that would be the non-believing, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, listen to this, and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, be ready and live in a manner that you will not be ashamed, so that When the Gentile Jethro shows up at your house with your kids, you can proclaim the goodness of God and be the instrument of Christ to draw him into saving faith. There's a day of visitation that's been assigned for all these people that you think are just too far gone, or maybe you might think that they think that you're crazy. 
And yet God has designed a day of visitation for them in which he's chosen to use you as an instrument that validates his power and existence. You see, it's by demonstration and declaration that the Christian lays the groundwork for the Holy Spirit to do what only God can do. See, we don't save anyone, but we're like John the Baptist. Make straight the way for the Lord. John the Baptist knew. He said, I must decrease so that he may increase. I am not the one. I just come in and I cut the trees down and I move the rocks out of the way. So when Jesus comes riding in, there's no stumbling block. Paul said the same thing. I want it that there be no stumbling block in the way of you receiving the gospel. Paul had no rose-colored glasses about himself. He didn't think he was going to do anything except move things out of the way so that people could just be introduced to Christ. He said that God saved him because he was a chief sinner so that no one could say, well, I'm too much of a sinner for God to save me. Paul said, no, he saved me so that no one could have that excuse. And you can see that all throughout the scriptures. Why does God choose David, the little, the ruddy shepherd boy, rather than his tough, buff brothers? (laughs) So that no one could say, well, I'm not really qualified to be God's man or woman. Well, if he uses David, then he can use you. What about Moses? Why would God use Moses, the stuttering, bumbling brother, rather than Aaron, the one who's pretty good as a spokesman, but not so great as a leader? You know, Aaron's a good spokesman. Takes him about 24 hours to build a golden calf later on, though. Why does he use Moses? Because the stuttering, bumbling, insecure guy that ends up standing up and bringing down the greatest empire the world's ever seen, that brings glory to God. People say, "Eh, that's not the Moses I know. He's the kid who played by himself at recess. You know, he doesn't like people. So in this moment, when Moses just declares the greatness of God to Jethro, there's a rejoicing that happens. It says in verse 9, And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. But it doesn't stop there. If Jethro just did what you and I have experienced many times, maybe you've told someone a great story about God's goodness, and they've said, Hey, man, that's really good for you. And then you move on. You know, sometimes that discourages us, like, oh, okay, they didn't really have that conversation. Well, that does happen. But that's not what this story, that's what happens in this story. And sometimes what happens is then it goes further than that. Listen to what Jethro says here in verse 10. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Here's the key line. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. What was God's intention with the Exodus? That all the nations might know? Now I know that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, who is that? Yahweh, the I am. I am who I am, Moses. Tell the Pharaoh and all his gods, I am sent you. Jethro, the priest of Midian, very familiar with the little G God, says, now I know that Yahweh is the greatest. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. Because in this affair, They dealt arrogantly with the people. Now I want to go through these just really quickly. There's a lot in here, right? Blessed be the Lord is a declaration of worship. Blessed be the I am from the priest of Midian is a sign of submission to the God of Israel. Blessed be the God of Israel because he delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of the Pharaoh, out of the 
people of the Egyptians. It's a recognition that Moses was not just saved from a land of tyranny. He was saved from a king of tyranny and that God also saved every single person who believed on the name of Yahweh and put the blood on the lamppost. You see, he's acknowledging that God's not just the God of Moses. He's the God of anyone who will trust in his word. He's the God of anyone who believes on him. And when God says something that takes his word and applies it. And then he says, now I know that the Lord's greater than all the gods. You see, this is key. I want you to hear this. Salvation is not merely an intellectual assent to a set of spiritual principles. Salvation is a spiritual transformation that culminates in the declaration of God's supremacy over all of the false and vain idols of this world. Salvation's a repudiation of the world. It's a moment of deep and abiding clarity that there is a God There is a spiritual realm. This is a spiritual battle. And if there's only one true God among all the other false gods who has the true dominion, the true authority, the true supremacy, and he reigns forever and ever, and his kingdom has no end, and he has a name, and he's called you to himself. That's salvation. That's big, isn't it? See, some of us just say, well, yeah, I believe there's a God. You know what the book of James says? Good. The demons believe that, and they tremble too. You see, it's not just merely, it's like, oh, yeah, there's got to be a God. You know, I figured out that maybe, you know, something can't come out of nothing. So, yeah, there's a God. It's like, okay, so you've gotten to the theological place that the demons are at, but let's move forward. Who is he? What's he called you to? What's he commanded of us? Now, that's what's happening to Jethro here. And the reason I think this is so significant is because the Bible tells us the Midianite people, which Jethro is a Midianite priest, the Midianite people, they draw their heritage from Abraham. Many people don't know this, but if you go back into the book of Genesis, after Sarah dies, Abraham takes on another wife and he has children. And one of those children is the father of the Midianite people. And so it's likely that the Midianite people, they knew of Yahweh. They knew of the Lord. They knew of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at least. And yet the Midianite people moved to Canaan, which Canaan was a place, a land full of idols. And they themselves began to worship multiple gods. In the book of Numbers, we see that the Midianites had fallen into great Baal worship. We see this because the Canaanite people dwelled near them, and the Bible records that the Midianite women went into the camp of Israel, and they drew the men of Israel away from God and began to worship Baal. And there's a great battle that happens after that, where God tells Moses that they must treat the Midianites now like an enemy. So for the priest of Midian to be making these kind of statements, it's not a small thing. He's a representative of a whole group of people that have a whole group of gods that have a whole religious system. And I want to say, in all likelihood, Jethro himself sacrificed to the false gods of his fathers. In all likelihood, Jethro was a learned man. He was a just man. And by all accounts, he was a man that loved Moses. But what we know most likely is that Jethro is a lost man until Moses recounts to him the Lord. Now, I want to ask you this question. Do you think Moses knew that he would marry Zipporah so that Jethro would know the Lord? Do you think he knew that when he was just drawing water out of the well? Hey, this might lead to the Midianites knowing that God is the true God of all. Do you think he understood that when he fetched water of that well in the middle of his despair, that the Midianite people would be able to hear from one of their priests about the true God of all things? Do you think that was going through his mind? My guess is probably not. My guess is, I don't know if you've ever been depressed or discouraged, but you're not even thinking about that at all. 
If you've ever thrown yourself a pity party, there's not a lot of room for big think. Okay? Why is that important? Listen, you are not required to understand the depths of the mysterious plan that God has for your life. It has not been given to man to know the future, and particularly not the future of his own life, lest God reveal it. Instead, it's been given to man this task, to be faithful to God. In all things, trust him, fear him, declare his goodness to all who will hear you. That's your task, not to understand what's coming, to understand what's been passed, but to know that God is good. If you spend your life trying to understand why what has been done to you was done to you, you will miss what is happening now. You must trust that what's been done to you sovereignly by the hand of God, he will turn for your good and his glory because that's his character. If Joseph spent all of his time only focused on why is it that my brothers hate me so much because of a coat my dad gave me, probably isn't necessarily lending to a great creative future occupation as the second man to Pharaoh. Let's just be honest. I think today there's a secular nihilism that is seeking to choke out our society to cause us to think of our lives as something trite and something meaningless. Like we're all just a ball of dust, higher forms of animals. So there isn't much to consider about our daily activity on the earth because we're just like the ants that we watch in our front yard every day scurry around. We're industrious, yeah, we're alive, yeah, we're active, but ultimately we're just meaningless. That's what our culture tells us. And I think the church is not immune to this. Um, it's almost like we only have one chapter in the Bible as Christians. It's like we only have Ecclesiastes 1, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we, we never move beyond that. It's like, okay, like, no, Christ has bestowed upon us and endowed us with glorious and eternal purpose. That's the gospel. That you were created for something, you have fallen into sin, and then, don't stop there, okay, guys? Don't stop at Genesis 3, because that's dark. you got to go at Genesis 3, because if not, you'll see yourself through rose-colored glasses. Now, there's another part to that. Some of us have never gone to Genesis 3, so we just think we're pretty good. But that's not this. When we just camp in Genesis 3, you never see that God's purpose is to redeem and restore you. You have a glorious, eternal meaning for your life. Every mundane desert season of your life, your moments of exile from relationships, your times of great trial and doubt, in those moments, the Christian should know that God is at work weaving his purpose into your life. He's at work helping you when you are in dire need. For every Gershom that is born, Eliezer is born for the Christian. For every sojourning season, there's a season of God's help and redemption. And listen to me, and guess what? It's not just for you. But so that when Jethro shows up, you can say, let me tell you about God. You see, God's always at work. He's forgiving us when we're unholy rebels. He's feeding us when we're about to starve. He's giving us water when we're about to die of thirst. And it's all so that our lives would become living testaments to the gospel of his grace. And that's what happens here with Moses. Moses kind of nails it here. And I want to point out to you that Moses doesn't nail it because he went to a good training seminar about evangelism, and I'm not against those. I'm just saying, this is a very simple form of evangelism in that he just tells his story and, and makes God the hero of it. Now, that's supernatural, and here's why. Because we like to make ourselves the hero of the story, don't we? 
How often do we retell the story of our lives when we say, yeah, I was down on my luck and then uh, went to Dave Ramsey. Things changed. Check out my bank account now, you know. Envelope system, baby. Will and discipline. Someone comes to you, I mean, you know, I've been doing this new thing. I'm going on a diet in January. You're like, yeah, I went on a diet once too. Can't you tell? Um, And I did it because it's all about the will, man. It's all about getting up, discipline, be stronger, be fit, hit the gym, don't be a bum. You know, the Christian's meant to say, here's the story of my life. Here's the dark parts, the light parts, the, the good parts, the bad. And, and you know who's the hero of that story? But by the grace of God, I would be dead. But by the grace of God, picture the most pitiable creature you ever could. That was me. That's what Moses is doing here. He's saying, I was just a sojourner in exile in a foreign land, and God was my help. And look, not only me, but then he turns around, opens his tent up, and says, Jethro, the millions of people out here. And that leads Jethro to say, blessed be the Lord, the I am. Now I want to close with this. Why should that be a desire for us? Like, of course, we want God to help us, but why is it such a big deal that, like, why is Moses so, why should he be so happy about Jethro? Well, there's this moment right here at the end that I think is, is verse 12, which is not all that small. Listen to what the Bible records. Jethro Moses' father-in-law, he brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came in with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, the father-in-law, before God. So the scene ends with this act of holy communion, sacrificial worship, to the one true God from a pagan priest. Massive conversion. The result of this conversion is atoning worship, communion with God, and then also something that I think is often missed, right relationship with fellow man. There's this dinner that happens, this wonderful, blessed dinner. You have Aaron, God's high priest, breaking bread with a pagan priest. The pagan priest has been converted to Yahweh. You have Moses, God's prophet, breaking bread with his father-in-law, who was once lost but now is found. You have the elders, God's leaders, breaking bread with a leader of a pagan nation who is once lost and now is found. There's unity among these brothers, and you can't help but think Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the oil that fell down from Aaron's beard. And where there is this kind of unity, there's a commanded blessing, life forevermore from the Lord. That's what Psalm 133 says. You see, I don't need to spend time reminding you of all the perils of our culture all the bad things that are going on in our society. You've turned on the news, you see it. You see school shootings, mass murders. You mourn, right? And you rightly say, Lord Jesus, please come quickly. And we ought to say that because we know until the consummation of all things, all of this cannot be made right. And yet, Christians are not fatalists. Although we long for the day where the king arrives, because we know that until the king arrives, it's all not going to be made right. We also know that Christ has called us to live and build the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven now. That we're called to pray and ask God to intervene now. Now, some that believe in the social gospel think that that means that we should be all about material needs over spiritual ones. And I think that's just totally wrong. I think that 
What I mean by building the kingdom is this kind of Jethro-like conversion is what we're praying for at every level of our society. And we are doing our part by simply declaring and demonstrating God's goodness in our own lives and praying and asking God to do this kind of miraculous stuff all across our land that people might know that he is the Lord. And the reason that I say that is, let me ask you this. If the young men that you've seen on the news murdering people in the streets, going into schoolhouses, going into grocery stores. What if those men were met through a divine moment by the God of the universe like Jethro is here? Are we so faithless to believe that there would not be the same kind of worship and communion and rejoicing and fellowship like we see here in Exodus? Are we so faithless to believe that that wouldn't change everything? I believe it would. We can do a lot of legislation that cannot change the human heart, but Christ does. We preach Christ because we believe in conversion. We don't preach Christ because we believe he's going to legislate some new utopia on the earth. You must be born again, Jesus says. He didn't say you must elect better people. You got to change your voting habits. He says you must be born again. You want to know how to change the world? Be born again. Friends, we must not be so callous to believe that God only saved Saul of Tarsus back in Acts, but he doesn't have the intention of doing it over and over and over again in your family, at your job. Picture now, close your eyes, the person that you feel like is the furthest from God. I commend to you, pray for them every day this year. If God can upend the greatest empire the world had ever seen to that point in Egypt, can he not also bring revival back to our land quicker than we could ever imagine? I would say yes and amen. We must return and reclaim a glorious view of God's might to save. See, we used to sing it. You know, Some of you who are a little bit younger, you might not have this. It's not in your repertoire. We used to sing it about God being mighty to save. Maybe we should start doing it again. Because, Christian, your whole life has been designed by God that you might be the instrument through which the Jethro moments happen in your own family, in your own life. And here's the thing I want to pull the weight off of your shoulders. It's not up to you to save people. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done to save. And then when he ascended on high, he sent the Holy Spirit and said, I'm sending the Spirit with you because it's the Spirit that's going to do the saving. So guess what you have to do? Just be faithful and trust him. Or court, just say, aren't you glad the Lord let your car be one row down from mine? How awesome is that? And not go, oh, I'm an idiot. Why? Because you know what? I had been talking to my wife about it for the 10 minutes in the car. It's what I really believe. Why am I ashamed to say it? He truly is that good. He truly is that wonderful. Let me tell you something. He's way better than just making your car be close to the other person's car. He saved me from death. He saved me from myself. I was headed not just to human prison. And I, I want you to know, I was headed to human prison. I went there. I was headed to hell. And he saved me from that. Why don't I tell more people about it? I don't do the saving, but man, do I want other people to be saved from it. Because he's that good, friends. He's that good. And so I want to leave you with this. If you're a believer in there, I want you to be encouraged this morning in two things. A, 
to be empowered to share the goodness of God in your life with others and the weight to fall off your shoulders to think that you have any responsibility to be a savior. You don't. You just get to be a messenger. You just get to rejoice publicly about who he is. And then if you're in the room right now and you're not sure you're Christian, I just want to commend him to you. There is no savior like Jesus Christ. There is no God like Yahweh, the I am. All the other gods that manifest themselves through social media, that manifest themselves through the promises made by our culture, they are liars, deceivers, empty. They want everything from you and they will give nothing to you. Christ has given everything for you and he has taken nothing from you. He has instead said, I give you my grace free as a gift. So I commend to you today to trust Jesus. And I pray that this morning that as we worship, our joy will increase. Because as your joy increases in God's goodness in your life, you can't help but tell about it. It's hard to shut joyful people up. (laughs) Just think about it. When your kid watches a good movie, they rattle on about it forever. Friends, your life's been a wonderful movie that's been designed and directed by God himself. Let's ruminate on that this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I just confess to you now, I am an imperfect messenger, but I'm so grateful you've chosen to use me so that anyone who believes that they could not be a messenger for you would know by looking at me that you don't choose the best, but that, my God, you get the glory. So I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would do the changing in our hearts for those of us who are believers in the room, that we might be bold declarers and demonstrators of your mercy and that, my God, you would exercise your might to save for anyone in the room who has yet to choose to follow you, to surrender to you. Flex your might to save them now, my God, that they might fall at your feet like Jethro and say with all of the saints, blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no name given under heaven by which man can be saved, but every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ, you are Lord, to the glory of God your Father. And we do pray it in your precious name. Amen.